Support for Longform this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Aaron Lammer. Joined remotely are my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Good evening, Aaron. Hey, you guys. Do I need to mention that this is remotely anymore, or should that just be the default <laughs> assumption? We'll acknowledge if and when we are ever in person again, we will say that out loud. Just assume we're not in the same place. It is strange to think we did this podcast um, entirely in person for like uh, eight years uh, leading up until the pandemic. But we bring to you now the ongoing pandemic experiment in the long form podcast. Uh, this week, I talked to Kelifa Sane. He is, uh, of course, a staff writer at The New Yorker and has a new book out. It's called Major Labels. It's about all of the second half of the 20th century's music history all in one book. And it builds on a lot of the stuff that he has um, written about first as a critic at the New York Times and then at the New Yorker. He had an excerpt in, in one of the recent New Yorkers that was um, kind of taken from the punk chapter of the book. So that's a decent decent place to start if you uh, want to do some background reading before this. But fascinating conversation. As listeners will know, this is the kind of thing I like to talk about. Uh, I had to tell our editor uh, to cut out parts where I just pontificated about music for extended periods of time. But <laughs> I was going to say, I'm I'm excited for this one because I think if you asked me to go like figure out something about music history from the second half of the 20th century, I would have just called you. Uh, yes, uh, this is a topic that um, matters a lot to me. And uh, I think he's one of the most interesting people to talk to about it. And I probably could have talked to him uh, for four hours uh, if he had not had other things to do. Uh, if you listen to this interview and you are looking for more things to do, go check out Fox. We make this podcast with them. Thanks, Fox. And now here's Aaron with Califasane. Welcome, Califasane. Thanks. It's, it's fun and exciting to be here. I want to talk about your book, but as someone who I believe was born in the UK, I have to ask first how you came to magazine journalism, which I understand is not part of your <laughs> cultural tradition. So like, what led you to writing? I don't think they even have any magazines in the UK. I'm not sure. Has it has not been invented yet over there. <laughs> That's right. That's the American dream is to cross the Atlantic and join the, the exciting and lucrative world of magazine journalism. Um, so my parents were both academics. My dad was from Gambia in West Africa. My mother is from South Africa. And so they lived in a few different places. I was born in the UK. We lived in Ghana for a few years. We lived in Scotland for a few years. And I moved to the US when I was five, when my dad got a gig at Harvard. 
At the time, it was just a one-year appointment, so we thought we were probably going back to Scotland. Um, and I had a Scottish accent. I was a five-year-old with a Scottish accent um, planted in this country, and we ended up staying. Um, and I grew up you know, around Cambridge, Massachusetts, and then he moved to Yale, so I went to high school. We were living in Connecticut. And I got... It's two things, right? So like culturally, I think that gave me a sort of immigrant's fascination with America. Like, what is this? Like, how does it, what are people doing? Like, what's going on? And maybe an immigrant's affection for America, you know, maybe more than some of my native born friends who are more likely to see the flaws. I was kind of like, this place is amazing. And then the second part of it is that I got into punk rock when I was 14. Literally, I think on my birthday, uh, my best friend gave me a mixtape. Uh, he was like, here, you might like this stuff. Um, and I'd been listening to some stuff that was a little bit punk adjacent. I had Mother's Milk by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So like my friend Matt like saw that I was listening to some stuff that was maybe a little bit off the beaten track. And he was like, yo, you might like punk. And so he gave me this punk rock mixtape and I was all in and I became just like a punk rock obsessive. And that's kind of what got me into thinking and sort of writing about music. That's that's what kind of taught me that music was a thing you could have opinions about. And then a few years later, I ended up getting back into hip hop and getting kind of obsessed with hip hop, which had been what I'd listened to when I was a boy. And, you know, when I was a punk, hip hop seemed just like super mainstream. I wasn't paying that close attention to it. And then after a few years, like I had this like kind of reconversion moment um, where I was like, oh, hip hop is amazing. Hip hop is the best. It's the coolest. It's the most audacious. And, you know, the fact that hip hop was so great and so popular right? That it, these, these people were selling millions of copies of records. Like I remember not falling. I remember hearing 400 degrees by juvenile, right? Which is this record. People know it for back that ass up or back that thing up, but a really cool, spooky sort of electronic record. He has these kind of Manny Fresh who produced it, had these kind of craft work in, influenced beats and juveniles flow just didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard. It didn't, it almost didn't sound like rapping and he was using this New Orleans slang. Anyways, that combination of this music that I thought was so incredible and so great and so popular and wasn't really being celebrated by critics, even the hip hop critics, that kind of came together to really sort of light a fire under me to be like, I want to take to the pages of newspapers and magazines and tell the world they're wrong about this hip hop music and that hip hop is amazing. And so that was the thing that kind of got me into writing about music. And that was what I was. I was, I was a music writer at first, kind of. And... I did stuff for the Boston Phoenix, which was the weekly, the alternative weekly in Boston. I moved to New York. I was working at an academic journal that Henry Louis Gates and Anthony Appiah edited called Transition. Really cool, weird publication that focused on kind of race and culture and telling unusual stories. And so I was working as a as a on the editorial staff there. And moved to New York and just started freelancing. So I, I pitched some stuff to the Village Voice. I had previously interned at The Source. And then through that, yeah, got into the New York Times, wrote a piece for The New Yorker, and eventually in 2002 was hired at like kind of my dream job, which was pop music critic at The New York Times. So just getting to go to shows and listen to CDs 
and tell the world what I thought of them, which is a crazy job. Like, it's such a strange job to have to be a, a music critic at a newspaper, at the newspaper. Um, you know, there was something so absurd about that. And uh, I like the idea of trying to lean into the absurdity, right? Trying to take that seriously. What does it mean to sort of pronounce in the pages of the newspaper, this is good, this is bad? What does it mean to do enough listening and enough research that you feel confident in making a judgment like that? And uh, so, yeah, to me, that was the fun part of the job. You use the term normie, which mostly you hear in a more political context now, right? The alt-right might distinguish themselves from uh, traditional Republicans as saying they're normies or, and that idea of music as like a holistic identity um, seems to have waned and and you've been covering music during that period. So when did you start to see sort of the end of music as a a full identity and, and why do you think that happened? Well, it's funny. You're right that this this idea of like the underground versus the normies, it's something, it's kind of a rock and roll thing. A lot of people associate it with punk, right? Punk really did a lot to establish that, right? Even if you think of a term like normcore, the fashion movement, right? That suffix core comes from hardcore punk, right? Nor- so like a lot of this way of thinking of normies versus the regular people is sort of, even in the alt-right in a way, is kind of like punk inspired, right? You see the you see the Proud Boys with their Fred Perry shirts and that's like a skinhead thing, which is sort of a related to a punk thing. So it, it's amazing how that way of thinking has really infiltrated the world. And, and what you've raised, I think, is an interesting question, which is, the extent to which these musical tribes are still functioning and are still important. And I guess I would say a couple things. One is, as you notice, some of that energy is other places, right? Some of that energy is in politics. There's other places you can go to get that. And it's certainly true that some of the old institutions that helped perpetuate these tribes, these genres, are not as strong as they used to be, right? Like when you think of musical genres, you think of like the sections in the record store or you think of terrestrial radio, you're home for hip hop and R&B, right? You're a country station, the wolf or whatever. So yes, those things still exist, but you're right that they've faded somewhat and that in the world of Spotify, it's easier for people to kind of browse and stream and maybe you just put on the chill playlist and you listen to a bunch of chill stuff. It's kind of hardened into conventional wisdom a little bit that genres are old-fashioned, that the genres are kind of dissolving, that we don't need them anymore, and further, maybe that genres are bad, maybe that genres are kind of close-minded, they're both they kind of limit you artistically, they segregate you sometimes racially, and that having a quote-unquote progressive way of thinking about music would involve getting beyond genres. So that's all still happening, certainly. But doing the research for this book, which was a lot of it was just going back over the last 50 years, that was the story I was kind of trying to tell is what happened basically since the Beatles broke up. And so going back over that last half century, I was struck by all these moments that felt a little familiar, that felt like some of this was happening. There's a moment even earlier than that in, I think it's 62 or 63, where Billboard stops publishing its R&B chart. Because the idea is like all these R&B records are going pop. 
we're not sure there is really a separate R&B world anymore. It's all together. Like in the 60s, when people talked about rock and roll, they were talking about like the Rolling Stones and the Supremes when, when time does its rock and roll is conquering cover, right? And the idea is that all this stuff is mixed up and the, 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 the Beatles and the Rolling Stones are doing Motown covers. And it's, there's this idea like, oh, maybe this stuff is all coming together. And then by the 70s, it's gone totally separate directions. And you have arena rock over here and so-called soul music over there. And it's like kind of separate. And by the late 70s, it's coming together again, right? One of the things that disco was, was this sense of genre again dissolving, right? We're all going to get together on the dance floor. It's going to be straight and gay and black and white and Latin. It's going to be the Rolling Stones and Donna Summer and Star Wars and Disco Duck and whatever. It's all going to be mixed up and we can all dance together, which is a, a very utopian idea. But it's also an idea, of course, that spurned a huge amount of backlash for a variety of reasons. And, you know, because people said, I don't want to be like those people. I don't want to be with them on the dance floor. I'm doing something different. And so one way of thinking about the current moment where it seems like you can get any song you want on Spotify and where, you know, some of the big artists or people like Lil Nas X who are saying like, oh, I'm going to be a little bit of everything all at once. Um, one thing that might be happening is genres might be dissolving. But another thing that might be happening is we might be setting the stage for the next era of backlash and the, the reassertion of tribal difference. I think as long as people use music to define their identities, music will continue one way or another to be tribal because people are tribal, you know, and, and music is such a social form that when we say we don't like music, a lot of times what we're saying is like, we don't want to be like those people who listen to it, right? I'm not sure it's possible to dislike or to hate music without thinking something not so charitable about the people who listen to it. I guess another way of saying that is I'm not so I'm not sure it's possible to have musical taste of any kind without being in some sense a music snob, right? Like saying like, I'm not, I don't like that kind of thing. And maybe it's reverse snobbery, right? Maybe it's like, I don't like the fancy music that those fancy people like. I just like the regular stuff. But either way, there's a form of snobbery at work. And that that human urge to 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 separate ourselves from someone else, to to say that, you know, we're the we're the the cool people and those are the normies over there. It's a very adolescent way of looking at the world, but it's also a very human way of looking at the world. It might also be a very American way of looking at the world. So as, as long as music is that important to us, and as long as we're using it to form our identities, um, I think it will be in one way or another kind of tribal. So one thing I'm kind of paying attention to is, are there new genres emerging? Is there a new spirit of divisiveness that's just around the corner? We have more cultural detritus than ever before. There's a greater backlog of available media, right? So like Spotify, I probably could be happy like listening to the past for the rest of my life. And in some ways it feels like there is a bit of a cultural backlog, much of which is what you're talking about in this book that may make it harder for future generations to have the sort of blank slate experience maybe that we had in music as teenagers. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's funny when I, when I think about David Remnick's profiles of, of Paul McCartney or something, there is, there is a sense in which it's, a, he's, he, he thinks about things in a very 
in a journalistic way that makes a lot of sense, right? There's there's some part of me that wants to say like, oh, I'm, here's this thing that like no one's ever heard of and it's super interesting. And there's, there's part of David Remington that says, how about this? Why don't I write about someone that a lot of people are interested in? <laughs> I bet everyone will want to read that. That many people already have a pre-existing investment in. We have a, we've already invested a lot in the past. Or that many people agree is important, right? That's that's a pretty good definition of something that journalism can do. And I, I think, you know, it's it's funny. Yes, there is this, you know, there is a backlog, right? There is a sense that music is really available to us, right? If you think about, I mean, this is how you feel old. You think about the music of, you know, we're recording this in 2021. You think about the music of 1971, right? You think about the Stones or Led Zeppelin or whatever, super accessible to us in a way that the music of 1921 was not as accessible to people listening in 1971. And, and so, yes, there is this history kind of, you know, bearing down. But on the other hand, like, because people still crave community, people like the idea of being part of a group of people who listen to stuff, right? And and sometimes they like the idea of being part of a huge group of people who listen to stuff. And sometimes they like the idea of being part of a smaller group of people who listen to stuff. I think both of these things can happen at once, right? Like punk rock is all about secret knowledge, but it's also all about this notion that music is being democratized, right? As, as the famous fanzine put it, here's a chord, here's another, here's a third, now form a band. But I want to say that when you're talking about like the ways in which these communities organize themselves around musical moves, right? Around a, a way of sampling, a, a guitar sound, that's only half of it, right? The other half of, of a genre, of a community is social, is, is, is saying like, I'm this kind of person. And in fact, often there is a dynamic between those two things, right? Often, you know, the, the story of country music is a good example of this, where precisely because country music has a, such a strong cultural identity, that gives country singers more musical freedom. Because the idea is like, as long as you're making something that's resonating with the country audience and reflecting your own country experiences, it can sound like whatever. And I think that's a good part of the reason why you go from drum kits being banned on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry to drums being welcome. That's how you go from fiddles to string sections and back again. That's how you go from just pedal steel to being able to use loud electric guitars to keyboards and synthesizers to like electronic hip hop production. Now, one of the most interesting figures in country music is this guy, Morgan Wallen, who comes from Sneedville, Tennessee, small town, probably the biggest star in the genre, depending on how you measure. And, you know, he grew up listening to like Nickelback and stuff. And I asked him, like, when did you like fall in love with country music? And he kind of said it was sort of the other way around, that he decided to start making some songs and they just kind of like came out country because that was his cultural background, even though it wasn't his musical background. And then if you listen to his records now, you hear like 808 drum sounds, these kind of like electronic drums that are associated with hip hop. You hear very syncopated vocal delivery. So you hear things very much borrowed from hip hop. But at the same time, you hear a very insistent country identity, right? He sings, beer don't buzz with that hip hop cuz, but it damn sure do with a little nitty gritty, right? Which is a way of saying like, my music may be sort of hybrid, but my cultural identity is pure. 
in an odd way, that was only underscored by the thing that happened this year where he's captured on videotape using the N-word. Morgan Wallen is, of course, a white guy. He was out on a night with friends. Cameras capture him using the N-word in, I think, what is supposed to be sort of a jocular way. And he gets pulled off of country radio stations nationwide, becomes the first country act since the Dixie Chicks to be pulled off of country radio. And then, of course, eventually starts sneaking back onto country radio stations because unlike the Dixie Chicks, he never lost the support of country fans who I think were kind of annoyed by the idea that this guy they love was being sort of censored by the powers that be. And in that way, he became even as he's a kind of a musically hybrid figure, he becomes a more culturally polarizing figure, right? There's lots of people who say, oh, I listen to all sorts of music, but they would never listen to Morgan Wallen, not because of the electronic production or the guitars, but because of what he now seems to represent. And so that's an example of the country identity at that moment being a little more flexible musically, but being a little stronger culturally. And often you see that pull and push and pull in different ways. You see that push pull certainly within hip hop now, right? The idea of, you know, uh, of all these rappers who like sort of rap, like Future or Travis Scott, or sort of sing like Drake, right? And this idea that you can be culturally hip hop, and that means you don't have to be very rapidy, rapidy, rapidy. You can do whatever you want with your vocals because your cultural identity is secure. And so that's another way these communities are defined is, is not by music, but by culture. And often there is a, a sort of a tension between the two. Okay. I want to talk to you about writing music profiles because mm-hmm. what you just did there with Morgan Wall. Have, have you written a profile of uh, Wallen before? I don't know if you'd consider it a profile. I wrote a piece about him right before the album came out where I talked to him a couple times. So yeah, like a semi-profile, basically introducing New Yorker readers to Morgan Wallen. So what you just did there extemporaneously was kind of a masterclass in, <laughs> in profile writing, which is you first situated like who he was and gave us something interesting and sort of counterintuitive. And then you put us in this scene uh, where he's coming home from this drunken night. And then you put us in the sort of aftermath of that scene. And then you sort of said, you know, that's sort of where our story trails off. And at one point in the book, you'd say that someone you, that you write about needs to be interesting, masterful, or popular, ideally two of three. So in, in the the Wallen example there, I believe it was interesting and popular. We're both checked off. That, yes. Even all three. I would, I'd say he's all three. That was the, the criteria that I sort of developed for myself at the New York Times was I was going to write about music that was, that was good, popular, or interesting, preferably at least two, and with special skepticism aimed at music that was only interesting, but not good or popular. So in constructing a profile, does like different assortments of two of those three produce different kinds of profile? And and how do you sort of translate those into the terms of like a profile of, of a person? Certainly when I moved from the New York Times to the New Yorker and I was writing longer pieces, one of the things I realized was that that I wasn't, especially when I'm writing about culture, because it's so fragmented and there's such a big world, like I didn't feel the urge to like grab someone out of that cultural world and write a piece to be like, you know this person that you maybe never heard of? They're terrible. They're boring. Like that felt weird to me. So I found myself writing about people that I thought were interesting in some way, that I thought you might want to spend 
you know, if it's a profile, four, five, six, seven, eight thousand words with, and that it wouldn't be boring, and that they would reveal some some sort of layers. So that was one thing, and 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 similarly, I found there was lots of, especially music that I loved that I didn't necessarily feel like I needed to profile, right? Just as I didn't feel like I needed to go out of my way to be like, stop listening to this, it's bad. There's plenty of records where like I heard it and I was like, man, I love this record. But like, you don't need to love this record if this is not what you're into, like, it's fine. And then I guess the third thing is, the weird thing about profiles, and obviously the New Yorker as a publication is sort of built on the profile. There's a, a saying inside the magazine that like whatever piece you set out to write, it's probably going to end up as a profile and it's going to be perceived as a profile. So make sure the person at the center of it is like an interesting person. And maybe you'll be happier if you just start off thinking of it as a profile. And, and so, you know, that that history makes it so that a profile is kind of a collaboration. And that was a big difference for me too. At the at the time, it's just like, I'm going to this show. Whereas like a profile, there is a little bit of a dance. Early on when I was there, I profiled Michael Savage, the, uh, the conservative radio host. And for him, I would, uh, I remember I would email him being like, I want to profile you. And then he would read my email on the air and, you know, make some remarks about the liberal media and have his callers call up and say what they thought, whether he should cooperate with the profile, and then he would write me back. So things got very meta very quickly. Um, and of course, I put that in the story. It was it turned out to be good copy as well. So yes, that's the other part of it, is that it's also, it's, you know, in some weird way, transactional, right? The person you're profiling wants to get something out of it, and what they want to get out of it might not be exactly what you want to get out of it. But yeah, in general, the people that I've written about are people that I think are good at something. And especially once you get outside of the world of music, they don't have to be good at something that I like or that I support, but I have to feel, you know, that bit of like admiration for like, wow, here's someone who's like figured out a thing or here's someone who's doing something at a, at a high level. I think that's important. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. You've pushed recently into profiling 
like viral stars. Uh, you wrote about Jake Paul. Jake Paul. And in some ways, I think like the opposite of like music you like right now might not actually be like music you dislike. People hate Jake Paul, but as you described in this article, some of the people who hate Jake Paul will pay to watch him fight in pay-per-view. And, and this is like a new kind of a new kind of fame. And I, I don't know if I want to call it art, but it's almost an, a new art form being famous on the internet. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's two things. One is that, you know, in some ways, platforms like TikTok can kind of frustrate some of these categories of good and bad, right? Because like, TikTok, things are measured in view counts, right? It's not like, oh, I have to decide if I want to pay $10 for this album the way things were when I was growing up, right? That required you to really think like, is this worth money for me? When you watch a TikTok video, you might just see it and think, huh, and then move on. Your view still counts. And you might not have had even the thought process of like, is this good? Is this bad? Like, what do those words even mean in the context of TikTok? That said, you know, I, I wrote this piece about Jake Paul. Jake Paul and his brother Logan Paul were huge YouTube stars who became hugely polarizing, right? A lot of people basically thought they were assholes. They were kind of in the prank practical joke part of YouTube, which can seem kind of cruel in certain ways. They've had controversies. Most famously, Logan Paul went to the so-called suicide forest in Japan and filmed a video there and encountered what seemed to be an actual corpse and included some footage of that in his video, which everyone, including, I believe, the head of YouTube, uh, found incredibly tasteless. And they've recently reinvented themselves as boxers, which is fascinating to me. I'm a fight fan. I, I, I write uh, often about boxing. And so seeing these dudes come into what is, in a sense, my world and seeing them like also like draw a big crowd and make some good money um, precisely because of that thing that you mentioned, right? There are people who would never buy a Jake Paul t-shirt, but like maybe they'll pay 50 bucks to watch someone try and knock him out. And one of the things that he discovered was that this was a really, a really useful way to monetize notoriety and that your notoriety could be really valuable. Following in that sense in the footsteps of Floyd Mayweather, who I've also written about, who was like the master at this because people would pay big sums of money to see if maybe this is the time someone's going to shut his mouth. And so following in the footsteps of that, you see Jake Paul, you know, finding ways to monetize the hatred that people feel for him at the same time in for him. And this is what gave it another level that made it interesting to me as well. For him, it's a redemption project, right? He's been, he's been accused of silly violations. He's been accused of serious violations, including sexual assault. And he knows that people tend to disdain or sometimes, as you say, hate social media stars. I think because the perception is that it's easy and it's kind of vapid and these are just like these spoiled kids with fancy cars and swimming pools talking about nothing in particular and raking in the big bucks, right? Like the job seems too easy and people don't respect it. And, and so to go from that to boxing, which is the opposite, right? Like even people who don't care to watch two people give each other brain damage tend to have a certain respect for a fighter because it's like, it's almost like a working class job, right? The idea is like you work with your hands, you get beat up, your body and your brain get this wear and tear. And it's like an honest living because we see what you're trading for that money, right? You're trading your health and your safety for that money. And so that is an interesting exchange that he was making. And I, I was fascinated by that exchange. It probably, even that probably goes back to my initial love of punk rock and my sense 
sense that the and that part of what I loved about punk rock was you know that it gives you an opportunity and a motivation to say that the music other people listen to is bad not just in the sense of mediocre but like morally bad and so it's like oh music is a thing you can have consequential disagreements about and man i love consequential disagreements like any time any place where people are having a disagreement is is interesting to me almost by definition well there's a there's a weird like relationship between the youtube star and I guess what would have been thought of as the one hit wonder uh, in the in the music era, which is every time I hear about people who are sort of virally famous in that way now, the main thing you get is I have so much fame. It's, it came so quickly and it could all go away in an instant. The, the week I stop putting up videos or YouTube kicks me off the platform or I get demonetized, it can all go away so quickly, which makes it a transitory culture. And in reading your book, I think I realized how transitory most music culture was, like how 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 short-lived many of these eras really were. Yeah. And it, it's two things, right? One is that, you know, we tend to value, there's a tendency to value things that last more than things that don't. And, and, and I say in the book that like, maybe we should think harder about that, right? Like, if, if a musician is very popular over time, that means a bunch of people living in a bunch of eras enjoy that musician. But like, is that necessarily better than if a whole lot of people living in one particular era love that musician? I, I talk about the song Rude by Magic, this like reggae pop song, one hit wonder by this Canadian group. And that like, maybe we should think about that song a little bit the way we think about languages and, and, and that sense of, of wistfulness we feel when the last person who speaks a language passes away, right? Like, could we get a version of that when the last person who really loved Rude passes away? Is there something to celebrate about pop songs that explode and then disappear as opposed to the ones that like have a steady audience over the years? Of course, musicians have a practical reason to care about this, right? Because they're trying to figure out if their careers are sustainable. And I think that's something that you see in all different walks of life. I, I know talk, from talking to people in the music industry, there was a time, certainly pre-pandemic, but even I think now, where they looked at ticket sales. And the idea was that ticket sales in music were what was really valuable because that showed who your real fans were and that was less likely to go away overnight. And if you could sell a lot of tickets over the years, that meant you had a really sustainable business. And you know, I think you see something like that with journalism, right? Like you can go super viral for a tweet or from a photo of a snippet of something that you wrote and like millions of people can see it and interact with it and earn you precisely $0. And at the same time, you can have journalists as we see now with a relatively few number of subscribers at subs, uh, on Substack. And if they'll pay five bucks a month, you don't need that many of them, right? If you can get 5,000 of them, which is a small number of readers is, is for a legacy publication. But you know, if you can get 5,000 people to pay you five bucks a month, you've got a really healthy business. So that's something that transcends music, right? That's just like a media question of how do we monetize attention and are we moving to a post-advertising world where it's more about getting those people consuming your content who really want to pay for it. In trying to take this like grand story of music in mostly the 20th century in the book, um, 
and uh, condense it to however many pages are in the book. Like five hundred, but hopefully it doesn't feel quite like five hundred. I was I would have guessed three hundred after oh, just good reading to hear. it. So it's it's a five hundred page that book that feels like a three hundred page book. But there were points in the book where I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa! You can't just like only give like a page and a half to this, you know? Um, it's it's uh, it's a real kill your darlings exercise. Oh my god, absolutely! There's all sorts of bands. I mean, there's so many bands I love that I couldn't even mention because, like, you know, the the idea is to go to go down enough rabbit holes that people understand that the rabbit holes exist, but you can't stop to go down all of them because hopefully you're keeping it moving and making it feel like a story. And one person's like giving short shrift to death metal is someone else's like, okay, I'm willing to read two pages about death metal, but please like keep it fun. So you have these like like people will pop musical figures will pop into the book. They will be like, this happened as like depicted in this person's musical transformation moving on. And that's like so much less than you get in uh, a New Yorker length profile. I'm curious like what that process was like for you and and what you learned from the massive compression necessary to tell this story. You know, I wrote my first New Yorker profile 20 years ago. It was a profile of Jay-Z, who at, at the time was not critically acclaimed, right? This was right before the blueprint came out. So he was kind of considered the quote unquote money cash hose guy. And like, so my profile was like, no, this guy's like an amazing rapper. And, you know, it took forever. I can't, I don't know, was it six months? It felt longer than that. I don't know. Just like, just learning the skill of like how to write a New Yorker profile, which I don't mean to make it sound pretentious. Like I was crafting this masterwork. It's just like a skill. It's a thing you're learning how to do. And like, you've never built a boat before. And like, now you're learning how to build a boat. I mean, a very small boat. I understand that boats take years to build. And, you know, part of that skill is is knowing what details, what quotes, what stories are going to be fun in print, right? Like part of the skill you develop as a writer is like someone says something to you in an interview and like you can picture it on the page and you're going to be like, oh, that's a nice little sentence. That's that's tasty. And I realized like, it, you know, I, when I was, I was, I, I've done some stories for This American Life and I realized immediately when I worked with them that like this skill was not as entirely transferable as I thought. Like I would talk to someone and they would say something and I'd be like, oh, that that thing they said was really interesting because I'm picturing it on the page. And the like brilliant producers over at This American Life would be like, well, that piece of tape is actually not that good. This other piece of tape is actually good. And I was like, oh, I see. So I like maybe have developed that skill when it comes to print, but in terms of like audio, that's something I'm still learning. And so when I set about writing this book, obviously it was kind of a daunting project. There were some some dark, dark days, as you can imagine, when you've like uh, signed a contract to write a history of music, like when you actually have to sit down in front of an empty Google Doc and write like chapter one, rock and roll. You're like, oh man, I'm not sure. I'm not sure this was a good idea. But the thing I had to rely on was a sense of like which quotes are like fun, which details are memorable. What's the thing you're reading like an account of a concert that happened 30 years ago, like what's the thing that you can take out that's going to be interesting to someone who doesn't care about Rick James, right? Like, you know, if you're going to tell someone about Cannibal Corpse, like you might as well mention that like Hammer Smashed Face is in the Ace Ventura movie as a way of just like, not only because that takes them out of the moment and you're not just giving them metal, 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 but it helps you. You're also acknowledging like, oh, 
this stuff seems ridiculous. And in fact, like the silliness was something that they acknowledged. And like, maybe you can move through that silliness to understand why some other people nevertheless like it. So what I hoped was that whatever I had learned over the years about finding memorable little like micro anecdotes and telling details and pithy quotes that I would have to lean into that and also have to be ruthless. When I'm thinking about writing a New Yorker story, the thing I'm always thinking about is how to not be that person at a party who corners you and tells you about their favorite thing and you're trying to get away. It's got to feel sort of like light and sort of fun and like, oh, let's like have a lark. Here's an interesting story. And what that means in practice is writing about music for readers who don't care about music, while obviously at the same time writing something that the connoisseurs don't roll their eyes too hard at, right? Like hopefully if you're a connoisseur, you can read something and be like, oh, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it that way and not just be like, this is totally like ABC. This is too simple. I'm curious, like your experiences of writing about nonverbal, but experiential music. Well, there's a, there's a prejudice, right? Which is like anyone who writes about music is probably someone who's interested in words and is probably therefore someone who's drawn toward genres that use words well or in an interesting way or people who say interesting things in interviews, right? And so, you know, I, I say in the book, Kanye is ex- exhibit A, right? If you're, if you're a writer, Kanye gives you everything you could possibly want to write about. There's feuds, there's beliefs, there's funny lyrics, there's clever lyrics, memorable lyrics. He's part of a thing like easy and fun to write about. And I say in the book, like there, there was times when I was at the New York times, when I would be going out to review some like electronic producer, right? Some techno gig or something. And like my editor would sort of sigh and be like, ah, okay. Because there was this perception that that kind of music is boring, is a little bit hard to write about. And so the things that you mentioned, the idea that this music is more experiential, right? The two of the places you see that um, is in electronic music, of course, and there's a similar thing with jam bands sometimes. And of course, what binds those two worlds is also drugs, right? There's a perception that like, not only does being high help you enjoy this stuff, but like, maybe you have to be high. And maybe this stuff sounds terrible if you're not high. You know, I, I took it as a challenge, you know, especially in the US. In the UK, I think there's a little more knowledge about the history of dance music. In the US, it's like pretty obscure, right? You're like, it's not like your average person knows where techno is from. The answer is Detroit, or certainly like knows the names of any of the people, you know, like De- Derek May and Kevin Saunderson who who like invented techno, right? Like this is this is considered pretty, pretty obscure stuff. So I wanted to tell those stories. And also talk a little bit about why why that music was actually interesting. And and you notice a thing, which is in this book, I try not to talk, this is going to sound silly, I try not to talk too much about music. Like I try not to get too deep into like this chord or this guitar pedal, because part of the interest in music and part of the story I want to tell is about culture more broadly. And like this reflected this thing that was happening in culture and it reflected this thing that was going down and it's semi-related to this political thing. And it's related to this kind of, these kinds of pants, right? Like part of the fun of music is it connects to all these things outside of music and it can be a way of learning about different ways of life. And so the fact that music takes you beyond music is, is really interesting to me. And in fact, I think that's one of the things that can make dance music interesting to write about, right? Is that you're not just saying like, well, they programmed the kick this way here and that way that, but you're saying like, actually, if I took you to a gig in the 2000s, if I took you to go see Paul Van Dyke 
playing a progressive house set. And then I took you to go see Theo Parrish spinning like some deep house records. Like you'd notice at the Paul Van Dyke thing, it's people in expensive shirts with expensive drinks who look like they just came out of work and they're there to rage. And at the Theo Parrish gig, it's like music nerds in t-shirts and glasses staring reverently at the DJ booth. It's a radically different social experience. And that's because dance music lives and dies as party music. And, and therefore, the social part of it is so important. The question of who gets into the party is so important. You know, I, I say in the book, every genre has gatekeepers. Disco had literal gatekeepers, right? Like someone with a clipboard or whatever saying you can come into the club or you can't come into the club. And that's often been true at dance music genres. That, that that party promoters pay really close attention to who's coming in, you know, both the demographics, race, sex, all sorts of things, but like what kinds of people am I drawing? That's why that stuff is interesting. If those different musical tendencies didn't draw different crowds, it wouldn't be that interesting to talk about. The thing that makes them cool, the thing that makes them interesting is like, oh, here's two different populations and two different kinds of parties. And, and one of the things that defines them is what seems like a small, but is actually a big difference in the soundtrack. And, and so, you know, there is a sense in which music critics kind of have to figure out like, what are we good for now? And, you know, hopefully one thing that music writing is good for is, is for putting things in context. And, you know, that relates to something you said earlier, which is hopefully one thing, one of the most important jobs of writers is to leave stuff out, right? In this world where there's like too much context and like, yeah, I kind of like this band. I'm not going to maybe read an entire biography of them. Like one thing that writers can do would be like, here's a way to think about it. And here's like another way to think about it without you having to read every interview they ever did and go deep into the discography. Here's just a way to, a way to situate it. And again, that can be valuable for music that we want to listen to. And it can also be valuable for music that we never want to listen to. You know, I've talked to friends who read this book and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm still not going to listen to that genre, but like, I feel like I understand it better. And, and maybe, and sometimes even like, I feel like my decision not to listen to it was the correct one. Like, yes, this doesn't sound like something I would like, but like, it's, it's, it's nice to know how it, how it, how it evolved and why it exists. So having hoovered up most of the 20th century in this book, only the um, second half of the 20th. I'm not trying to go crazy. It's only like, it's like 1970 to 2020. It's only 50 years of musical history. That's all about, about the last 50 years of music. Um, where do you see going from from here? Like, what do you want to do going forward? And did writing this big history sort of change your present day focus at all? I don't know if I've ever been someone who has grand plans. I think um, after I was at the Times, when I first went to the New Yorker, because I had done like nothing but music for six years, it was really fun to be doing other stuff and to be doing political figures and athletes and comedians and other stuff. But I never stopped listening to music. And I and and so then I, I kind of started writing about it a little more. And then with this book, I was sort of deeply immersed in it. But you know, I'm 45 now and I've been like kind of obsessed with music for what 30 years. So at that point, I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'll always be obsessed with music. I don't <laughs> I don't think um that's that's going away. You know, one of the things that surprised me writing this book was seeing how much continuity there was how these questions of like who gets to be in the in group and who gets cast out and what are these tribes or should we get rid of tribes or are these musical tribes kind of going away how those discussions really recur over the years like the things that we want from music even as the examples change and the specific the specific demands change 
the underlying urges and impulses really don't change that much. And so seeing, it definitely led me to see music as more cyclical than maybe I would have seen it 10 or 15 years ago. Like, oh, this moment that we're having before is new in some ways, but in other ways it resembles moments that we've had in the past. I've always been interested in what's happening now. Like I've always been interested in like what the so-called kids are up to and are doing. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily have to take the form of music. There are other forms of cultural expression and cultural identity that are that are powerful and popular now. And those are interesting to me too. But to me, music is is my love of music is first and foremost a kind of eavesdropping or voyeurism like i just want to know like what's going on like what are people doing what are people into and so you know i think for the foreseeable future like writing listening to music and writing about music will be a way of doing that although i you know although uh, at the at the new yorker they don't they don't really have rules about this stuff which is nice so i'm lucky enough that they let me um write about other stuff in addition but i think that i think that that general impulse to find ways to tell stories about like what's going on, like what people are into, what they believe, what they're disagreeing about, what they're up to. To me, that's like the main thing that I feel lucky to be able to do. I don't know exactly what form that will always take. Obviously, this is a time at which things are changing. Um, but certainly, I hope the uh, New Yorker continues to exist um, for a long time and that people are are reading magazines and books because I like – well, I was going to say I like writing magazine articles and books. That's not quite true. But certainly, I like having written magazine articles and books. I think that's as uh, good a place to stop as any. So uh, thank you very much for this interview. Thanks. This was great fun. Hey, uh, thank you for listening to the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to my guest. Thanks to Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, my co-hosts. Thanks to Jackie Sajiko, who edited this episode. Thanks to Noelle Matier and Susan Peterson, who are our interns. Thanks to everybody over at Vox, everybody over at MailChimp. We'll be back next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.